You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's Guest who is a Silver Star recipient, a member of the Marine Corps, who is currently running for elected office in the state of Louisiana. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. Our normal announcements. Uh, I do want to again say thank you all to for taking part in our promotion with Amazon on our website, hazardground.com. You go right there uh, at the bottom of the homepage, there's an Amazon button. You click on it or redirect to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. And we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a quick and easy way to support veterans' charities just by doing normal Amazon shopping. But you got to go to hazardground.com first. Also, works from your smartphone. It'll redirect you to your app. So if you save your credit card information, really user-friendly, very easy. As well, just another quick plug to go to hazardground.com. And if you guys have any guest suggestions, keep sending them to us. Uh, this week's episode we just released was a guest was a self-suggestion, but somebody went to our website, filled out... The, uh, the quick little contact us form and, and, and got their story told. So if you know of anybody uh, that you think wants to share their story, if you know of anybody who wants to uh, take part in the Hazard Ground, uh, it, we love it. it. It's just a great way to connect with people, but also a great way to, to get these stories out there. So, again, HazardGround.com, the place to go. Follow us on all the social media sites. You can reach out to us there as well. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Um, I know I'm a little bit delayed sometimes in getting to all those responses, but I promise I will get to you guys. So if you reach out to us on social media, I will get back to you. As well, leave us Apple reviews. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate that as well. And uh, continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. And subscribe to the YouTube channel, please. Uh, give a thumbs up and a like to content there. Smash that like button, and, uh, and we certainly appreciate it uh, to continue to help grow the show. All right, this week's guest. Actually, I was... Introduced to by a former guest on the show, uh, former Marine Keith Perry, who sh- shared his story uh, a couple of months back. But as I mentioned, uh, he's a Silver Star recipient and a Bronze Star recipient. He spent 22 years in the Marine Corps, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, two deployments to Iraq, including the invasion of Iraq in 2003. His second deployment was where he was awarded the Silver Star. And coincidentally enough, it was, what, 18, no, 19 years ago today, uh, that that battle happened where he was awarded the Silver Star April 13, 2004. We'll get to that. He's also running for sheriff in Washington Parish, Louisiana. He is Jason Smith joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jason, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Uh, listen, uh, Keith tells a great story. I loved his story. And when I saw what he was sharing with you about you running for office in Louisiana and then heard about your story, I immediately hit Keith up and I said, I need to talk to this guy. I need to get him on the show. I forgot to mention, too, one of the coolest things at your time in the Marine Corps, you were actually an exchange officer in the Royal Marines in the United Kingdom, which uh, is crazy. I didn't know that we had uh, any connection to the Royal Marines at all. Uh, so that's that's kind of cool and quirky and a great way to finish out your career. Yeah, it was good. Uh, you know, I was working directly for the Commandant General of the Royal Marines. I was on his staff. I was the only American on staff there. Um, so they were doing a lot of service level stuff, which they weren't going to assign the American to do. So professionally, in some ways, it was a little underwhelming, but personally, it was great. You know, we've got five kids, so they were in a great school and met a great circle of friends. We got to see and do things we would never done otherwise. And it was good as a Marine to get back to my roots because we trace our history back to the Royal Marines. You know, the idea of a Marine Corps came from the Royal Marines and, uh, 
you know, it was good. It was interesting to see some of the traditions and how we've kind of Americanized them. And, you know, you kind of see the evolution of the culture. Uh, it was just a great, great experience. And I'm very, very thankful that I was able to do it right at the tail end as well. All right. Forget the military stuff. What is the one piece of British culture or food or whatever that you that you took back from there like that you still do today? Is there anything? Oh, that's a good question. I think in some ways I'm I'm definitely an Anglophile. Um, I drank a lot more beer there than I typically would have. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, tea. You said the what? I thought you were going to say you drank more tea now. Isn't tea is what they? Drink. No, no. I, I I I developed a taste for tea as well. Uh, the thing I appreciated most about being in England was they were very village specific. Like there's. I think of the of the people on the staff and we had guys from a couple of different countries, but across the Englishmen that were on the staff and there was probably 30 of them. I don't think any one of them had the same accent. I did not expect to see that because we all have this version of an English accent. It's like a cross between either Dick Van Dyke or, uh, you know, somebody from Downton Abbey, one of those two variations. But. England, for being as small as a country as it is, is so specific to your region, your mm-hmm. village, your town. Wow. It's got very distinct cultures across the country. And that's the thing I probably appreciated more than anything else. I probably would have been kicked out in the first. I would have not stopped quoting Braveheart and just screaming <laughs> William Wallace the whole time, like, you know, just annoying the hell out of everybody. And they'd literally be like, can you get this guy out of here? He's really, you know, re- really starting to irritate us. So anyway. no, they've got a good sense of humor. The English do as well. They're, uh, I thought their sense of humor was off. Isn't that the thing? Like they have such bad, dry senses of humor. No, they, they, as a, as a people, they, they are hilarious. Okay, I mean, it well, is good. fairly dry, very cutting. The idea of banter, like if you've got thin skin, you're going to struggle to yeah. live in England. I mean, between Braveheart and uh, like uh, Monty Python, and you know, I just would have been right. throwing out all the irritating British acts, Mister Bean. You know, that's like, right. They, they would have they would have hated me. I can guarantee you that much. So uh, that's why they don't send me for important jobs like that. They just leave me here talking out loud to nobody. Uh, there is that. So okay, <laughs> your career did not start in England. It started here in the United States in the Marine Corps. How and why did you get in? That's a that's an interesting question. I got in kind of as a dare uh, because I was a history major at LSU. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was due to graduate in December of 94. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do beyond that. My dad had been a helicopter pilot in the Marine Corps. And so at that time at LSU, when you register for your classes for the semester, you had to walk through the field house. I'm sure it's all online now, but you had to walk through and then when you pay your fee bills at the end, there's like all the clubs and various Frisbee club and whatever. And so you kind of navigate this gauntlet of tables and people trying to get you to sign up. And there was just a Marine captain sat at a table at the end. And so I just asked him, hey, you know, what is what are you trying to to get? And he said, you know, we're not really interested in seniors with all of the things that I understand now having been on recruiting. But at that time. He didn't seem very interested in me. And so I talked to my dad about it. He's like, you know, you got to, you just got to show that you want to do it. So then it was kind of like a challenge. So I went through the process and found out about a week before I was due to graduate that I'd been selected for OCS, which was good because I didn't really have a plan B. Uh, and then I, in January of 95, showed up at Quantico and thought I had made an enormous mistake. <laughs> 
I was very naive and unprepared for what awaited me. Uh, and then here we are, you know, almost 30 years later now. Interesting. Uh, and you glossed over this, that your dad was a, a helicopter pilot. He was also in Vietnam, correct? He was, yep. He flew 34s initially, transitioned to the 46s, and then uh, ended up flying Hueys toward the tail end of his career. Okay. Um, and I, I will pump you guys up a little bit, but both you and your father are enshrined in the Louisiana Military Museum in Baton Rouge. So congratulations to both of you. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. In fact, uh, one of my kids took a field trip to Baton Rouge and they walked by and they were trying to convince their teacher that, hey, my dad and grandpa are in this case. And I'm like, ah, that's not, you know, <laughs> you're just some kid telling the story. They're like, no, no, come here, take a look. And so they're, you know, our pictures are right there. And so that's interesting. That's awesome. That's that, that's great. Yeah. I mean, do you think if your dad wasn't in the Marines or in the military that you would have joined? I mean, did you have a sense of patriotism or it was more of just one of those things? Like you said, I kind of needed to figure out something to do and this sort of fit in. No, I think, I think there's probably a, a mixture of things, you know, because my dad had been in the Marine Corps in the back of my mind, it had always been, I guess a possibility, but it's not something that I ever expressed a desire to do. But as you go through college, you know, as a history major, what was I going to do? I was going to go to law school. Maybe I was going to stick around grad school. I, ultimately came to the decision that I did not want to spend my life reading and studying about people that had actually done something. I wanted to do something myself. Uh, and so the step into the Marine Corps was kind of an, it was an easier step for, for me to make. I didn't know anybody at LSU that was joining the Marine Corps with me. In fact, most of the people that I was friends with thought I was nuts. I've met a lot of people that were in the Marine Corps that had gone to LSU, but we just didn't know each other at the time. Um, but I think for a lot of those reasons, you know, with my dad having the experience, although funny story, he when I told him I wanted to be an infantry officer, he wouldn't talk to me for a little while because, you know, his experience as a helicopter pilot dropping grunts off. I, I, I understand from an emotional level, he didn't want that type of life for his son. But right. for the same reason that I joined the Marine Corps, I wanted to be in the infantry as well. You know, if you're going to be a Marine, every Marine is supposed to be a rifleman. Well, heck, let's. How can you really be a Marine if you're not going to be a rifleman, right? Yeah. So that's, I mean, what we, that, that's what we try to do. There is that adage, uh, one that uh, I never had the experience of, of being saddled with. So, uh, you know, different paths. But uh, once you were done saying, go Tigers, uh, and you got commissioned, where are you heading to first? So my first rock job as a rifle platoon commander was in 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines was in Camp Lejeune. Okay. So, uh, in fact – a good buddy of mine and I, you know, every lieutenant, every infantry lieutenant has dreams of going out to Southern California. So going to Camp Pendleton and living the life, you know, we had all grown up with Top Gun. And so we had visions of ourselves playing beach volleyball and having a great time on the weekends. But hopefully not my, in jeans. That is the most perplexing thing in the world. Nobody <laughs> I n never met an individual in my life other than Tom Cruise and Top Gun who ever played the sport of beach volleyball in jeans. Listen, I like don't even get me started on sweatpants, right? Like, so, like pants in general on the beach is weird uh, to play volleyball, but at least Slider had sweatpants on. Listen, I, I have no defense for naval avi aviators. <laughs> Who knows what decision-making process they go through when they decide on their volleyball attire, but uh, that's probably just one of the things that they could probably stand some self-reflection on. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Uh, take a picture of yourself there, pal. Uh, that's right. So you didn't, you, you didn't go to Camp Pendleton. You ended up at Camp Lejeune. I'm sorry to cut you off. My, my, my no, so at, at the basic school, which is the entry-level training for all the Marine officers, you have a choice to put down where you want to go. So 
not everybody, even if everybody put Camp Pendleton, not everybody's going to go there. So my buddy and I, we decided we were going to be smart. And we walked into our XO's office and said, we want to go to Camp Lejeune. And they kind of looked at us like, are you sure? Like, yeah, because at that time, real world stuff, what we thought was real world stuff were the med floats. You know, you had all the things that were going on in Africa. You had things that were going on in, in the Mediterranean. And so we thought our best chance for being involved in something real was to just go ahead and decide to get assigned to a rifle battalion in Camp Lejeune. And then we would be, have our, you know, increase our chances of doing something real world. And uh, so that's what we did. And that's what we got. We got to be careful what you wish for. Right. So we ended up at Camp Lejeune. We checked in, excuse me, we checked in and Hurricane Bertha hit the the battalion the, the day after we checked in. And so then my company had been assigned to this operate or this experimental unit that the Marine Corps had set up, CBRF, which was Chemical Biological Incident Response Force, had done it in response to the sarin gas attack in the Tokyo subway in the mid-90s. And we got deployed to the Olympics. So my first deployment was to the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. And we were all sat on our packs and got caught woken up when the uh, bomb went off in yeah. Centennial Park. And yeah. uh, it, it was an interesting introduction to the real Marine Corps. Um, that's interesting uh, that you guys, I, I, you know, I think we've all seen the movie Richard Jewell at some point. But, yep. um, you know, to know how many of conventional forces were actually involved in that. Um, I was obviously unaware of at the time when I was a freshman in college, sophomore in college, whatever it was, but regardless, you know, it was one of those things where it just, you didn't have a scope of how many different, you know, entities were involved in, in the Atlanta Olympics. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, uh, it's been interesting to me to watch some of these documentaries, some of these recent documentaries about events that we've lived through, but you find out a lot of the detail that you had no idea about at the time. And mm-hmm. so even the Richard Jewell movie is a perfect example. You know, my, my view of looking through the straw of the Atlanta Olympics was living in open, uh, open warehouse with a hundred other Marines and not knowing what the heck was going on outside the walls of our little compound. And then you find out all these things that are going on. It's just an interesting, interesting uh, view back into your lived experience, which is good. All right. So uh, you end up uh, at Camp Lejeune, Atlanta, you know, prior to 9-11, what else is going on for you uh, as, a, as an infantry lieutenant? So I, I was actually talking to somebody today. I think the Marine Corps in 1995, when I joined, was closer to the Marine Corps of Vietnam than it is to the Marine Corps of today in a lot of different ways. But at that time, you know, we were still we still had all the Vietnam era gear. It was still a real big focus on patrolling and things like that. And so that was where we tried to focus most of our training. Real world, what was going on was there was some unrest in Africa. Uh, there was some unrest in Albania. Um, we were just getting ready for the Mediterranean float that we were going to go on as part of the 22nd Mew in the summer of 97. And so most of my time at Camp Lejeune was spent doing the workups for that. It was about a year long process of, of getting all that set up. Um, and then we ended up deploying in 97, spent six months in the med. We actually did a partnership for peace. So the ship that I was on sailed into the black sea through the Straits of the Bosphorus. And we did exercises in Ukraine, in uh, Bulgaria, in Romania, uh, which is funny because I went back and read an article about, the exercise that we did in Ukraine. And my experience in Ukraine was a good buddy of mine 
and I were selected to represent the battalion at the in the exercise ceremonies. And so we find ourselves in a Russian made car traveling into, you know, hours into Ukraine, passing all these checkpoints. We had no idea where we were going. We had no idea who we were supposed to meet. And then we show up at this random barracks in Ukraine and there's vodka and watermelon. And we spent the next several hours throwing knives at trees and challenging each other to push ups. And I don't know that any of that was what the Partnership for Peace exercise was designed to do, but we made a lot of good inroads. I'm saying all that to say that when I read an article, uh, because we were covered in U.S. News and World Report at the same time in 97. And evidently, there was a lot of unrest from Russians about the fact that you had NATO doing these exercises in Ukraine. And you fast forward to today or at least last year and you recognize, yeah, that they've been they've been upset about this for a while. And we just continue to do these things and pretend like, well, what their concerns don't matter to us. But I'm sure that's a subject for another podcast altogether. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have time for that one. Um Beyond that, uh, anything of, else of note happened in the, the pre-9-11 experience in the Marine Corps? Uh, I had gotten injured at officer candidate school, so I was about six months behind my peer group when I got to 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines. And so when we got back from our deployment in 97, I was not going to have enough time to do another deployment with the battalion. And so I was asked by the monitor, you know, our assigner, if I would accept orders to Bahrain to spend a year on security force duty. And so I had to go look up where Bahrain was in the world. And I eventually decided, yeah, I mean, it didn't take me very long to decide. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. So I spent a year on security force duty there as a platoon commander and executive officer. The first night that I stood watch was the night that we launched uh, cruise missiles into Sudan and Afghanistan uh, as a result of the uh, embassy bombings in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam. And so uh, we spent probably six of the month, six of the 12 months that I was there on um, a heightened security level. And this is all pre pre 9-11. So this is 98. I got back in 99 from that. Um, the good thing about that experience was I got a huge understanding of the benefits of the authorized uses of deadly force and was able to explain it in such a way that it made sense to the Marines to where they were able to have um, a good understanding of some of the tools that were available to them. And I think that paid off for us once we went to Iraq because we didn't feel like, at least I I think the Marines felt as if they didn't have to either shoot or not shoot something. They had a whole different range of options available to them and it made us more effective as a company. But uh, that all started in 98, 99 in Bahrain, you know, standing posts and talking to Marines on post and, trying to make the world make sense to them. So where are you on 9-11? What's happening? So 9-11, I'd gone back to the basic school as an instructor. So I was, uh, I was teaching a lot of classes through a lot of different reasons. Um, 9-11 happens and I watched the whole thing unfold uh, on a television screen in an office at Quantico. Um, And then my former company commander, when we had done that med float in 97 just happened to be the monitor. And he called me and said, Hey, I can put you in first battalion, fifth Marines tomorrow. If you want to go, this was, you know, nine 11 happened on a Tuesday. He, I talked to him on Friday. And so 
I got orders to 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and checked in. So let me ask you something. Like, are, when it happens the day after, are you sort of like, you know, emotions aside of the, the devastation of the day, but as a Marine, are you thinking, damn it, I'm stuck in this stupid training assignment. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, there was some – I don't know how much you want to get into this. Uh, there were some personal things going on. Uh, I was actually – put on, I was somewhat suspended, I guess. Um, there were some allegations about my performance. I was instructor of the year for the Marine Corps University. So Quantico houses the entire, all the schools for the officers uh, at Quantico. And I was, had been selected as instructor of the year for Marine Corps University. But at that time in my life, I had a fairly well-deserved reputation for not suffering fools very lightly. Okay. Uh, and so I put lieutenants on the spot in class, much like you would in law school. You know, I had remembered my experience at the basic school and I was determined not to allow people that I thought were kind of skating by to skate by. So I would put people on the spot in class. I was I wasn't really a screamer. I wasn't a yeller. I, but if you told me you didn't know in front of the entire class, I wasn't going to accept that as an answer. I was going to force you to come up with something. Uh, and a lot of people didn't like that. Uh, so I had got a reputation as somebody that uh, wasn't very kind to lieutenants. Uh, and so we had a new commanding officer come in. And so they had heard enough rumors and they put me to the side while they investigated this. That's why I was at Marine Corps. The, I was at the Marine Corps University Library when 9-11 happened. Uh, and so when my former company commander called me and said, hey, I can put you in 1-5 tomorrow. I was like, that sounds perfect. Uh, and so once the investigation finalized and they found that there wasn't anything to this, uh, they said, well, you can come back to the basic school and we'll put you in charge of hazing classes and equal opportunity classes. And I said, you know what? I think that it would not be good for me or the school. If I came back, I'm going to go ahead and accept orders to one five. And they said, fine. And that's what happened. So that's how I ended up in California. Gotcha. So you end up at uh, Camp Pendleton. Right. Yep. It, it, it all comes full circle. So your, all your, came full your circle, evil diabolical right. plan worked. Good that's job. right. Uh, with the assistance of, you know, Osama bin Laden, a bunch of other assholes, but neither here nor there. Uh, okay. So you end up going to one five. Now, do you think because you're going there, boom, you're going out somewhere right out the door? Yes. In fact, I had been told uh, the battalion commander for one five had come. The Marine Corps, any, anytime anybody gets selected for battalion command, they do a big conference at Quantico. And so I had met the battalion commander for 1-5, who's now General Retired Padilla. And I had spoken to him and he said, yeah, when you get out there, uh, we're going to Tajikistan almost immediately. This is in uh, early 2000. Well, this is late 2001 okay. uh, that we thought we were going to go. We were going to go set up an airfield and. I think it had been decided pretty easy, pretty early that we were going into Afghanistan. Uh, somebody was going into Afghanistan and we were going to support that operation. And so when I got there in October of 01, uh, that was what we were planning to do. And then, of course, it keeps getting pushed back and then another month and then another month. And then it kind of falls off the table. And so then we were shooting for uh, a deployment to Okinawa is what we were told. Uh, and we did go to Okinawa. We went to Iraq via Okinawa. So, um, but it, again, it, the whole thing kept push, get, getting pushed back as they were trying to convince, you know, from a political standpoint, they were trying to convince the rest of the world to buy off on this plan. 
it's funny to look back on it now, how long the lead up was to this whole thing, because it's it feels like in retrospect that, you know, September September 11th happened. And then we were in Iraq the next month when in reality it was 18 months later before we actually ended up there. Uh, So in that 18 months, we did, you know, we did a a deployment to Bridgeport, did some training there. We you know, we were just essentially practicing our practicing our skills and trying to get people in the right place. The personnel system of the Marine Corps had not caught up yet with the operational requirements because there was a lot of moving back and forth. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of people trying to go. That goes true, by the way, for for all the entire military. Uh, That's right. If you remember the beginning of Afghanistan, uh, and just to kind of tangentially go off here real quick, you know, uh, we, we went in there in October. By the end of December, I mean, we had leveled the damn place. I mean, yeah. the, the, the Tora Bora Mountains were, were shelled for about 48 hours straight with bombs. And this is when we thought we had – we did have Bin Laden. We knew where he was. And there's a great book called uh, Kill, Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury. That's a pen name for a former Green yep. Beret who, who passed on. Um you know, from cancer. But anyway, long story short, you know, so there was this lull in the early part of 2002 of us yep. still conducting high level kinetic combat operations in Afghanistan. But we kind of just forgot about it. Like in retrospect, when I think back to it, I don't ever really remember any high level reporting. And we had some major battles going on in 2002 all throughout Afghanistan. But politically, in the middle of 2002, we had the, the, the discussion of Iraq had, and weapons of mass destruction had taken full full hold of the, the yep. narrative and conversation surrounding the war. So, um, you know, I, I say all that to kind of lead in what you were talking about, about like we think we just got – it was it, in our world, as far as train up and get ready and go, it was hurry up and wait for all the military. It's like, okay, where are yep. we going? You know, and then, okay, now we may be going to Iraq all of a sudden gets into the conversation. Yeah, it's funny that the, the feeling that – the feeling of some guys that they had missed the war already, right. we, like I, in 2002, people was talk about it all the time you look the back show on it, you chuckle at you it. Look, little did we know. <laughs> yeah, you look back on it now, and you're like, I can even remember telling lieutenants, you know, when we finally got to Iraq, and I don't remember how the discussion came up, but essentially that we were going to have a hard time relating to some of our friends because we were going to be in the initial invasion, and they were going to miss out, you know, and. The fact that we we had no idea that the war was going to last as long as it did, and not only was everybody going to get a shot at it, but they were going to get multiple shots at it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Two, I'm not three, sure that's four. probably a good thing, but you know, again, uh, subject for another podcast. Exactly, best laid plans, right? Uh, without yep. uh, uh, the plan for the end. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so uh, when do you actually find out that you're going to Iraq? Like when do you, I mean, I mean, obviously you're in the invasion, as I said at the top of the show, but when do you start hearing, okay, one five is now shifting? That's a good, that's a good question. And I'm not sure I can pinpoint it. It's almost like trying to decide when you were grown up, like just one day you were. I can remember a lot of people talking about it from early on that every, all these rumors that, you know, one five is going to be part of RCT five and we're all going to Iraq. It was obvious that it was going to be a big, a big operation and they were going to need a lot of battalions. And so even though that we had been scheduled to go to Okinawa to relieve, I think it was 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, uh, who actually got the short end of the stick on that because they had to spend 13 months of a six-month deployment in Okinawa while we went to Iraq. Uh, 
So I guess that's a long answer that's not really an answer to your question. I don't know when I found out that 1-5 was going to be part of it. I just always assumed that it would be just because that's the way people were talking. I, I think General Dunford, who had a lot of stroke, was probably pretty influential in keeping his regiment together and not piecemealing it with different battalions that who he did not have a working relationship with. And I think that probably more than anything resulted in 1-5 being part of because we were scheduled to go to Okinawa. So I think that was probably more than anything what was responsible for us being part of the initial invasion. I'll rephrase the question. When do you start getting the plans for the invasion and what you're going to do? Oh, that was probably summer of 2 Yep. Because March of 03 summer was Summer of 02. Yeah, okay. So um, when when you hear the idea that you're invading Iraq and you're going to be part of this, um, what sort of thoughts run through your head? I mean, do you do you start to anticipate the level of resistance you're going to see? Do you guys start having conversations about, hey, we're going to lose some guys? Like, wh- wh- where are you mentally with the whole thing? There's a couple different answers to that question. So the first is, I think at that time, one of the big decision or one of the big um, – effects on our decision-making process was chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of training about chemical weapons and about the defense of chemical weapons. And it seems ridiculous now, but there was a lot of time spent going through, you know, mop suits and different things. There was a lot of time spent in uh, trying to figure out like when we got to Iraq, they assigned us two chickens. We got two chickens that they were supposed to be canaries in the coal mine that were supposed to warn us of some sort of chemical attack. So now, if, the, how chicken, these if chick- the chickens died first, you knew something was going on. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I don't know how the chickens were supposed to communicate this to us other than dying, which they both did because right. the Marines <laughs> tried to force feed them water. Uh, so we killed the chickens within a couple of days, <laughs> and we didn't do anything differently. We just kept going. So that's, uh, you know. Man. Yeah, Marines, you guys you guys crack me up sometimes. That's right. Uh, that's funny. But, yeah, and, and jokingly, I, I mean, when I deployed to Iraq in 05, you know, this was – two years after the invasion and they made us go through all the, the chemical stuff. And I'm like, yep. I, re- I remember it looking up, we're never going to use this stuff. Yeah. Like we're not like if, if chemical weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons hadn't been used in the two years leading up to it. What are they waiting for? Right? Like, Oh, two years later, two years into this thing of getting our ass kicked now seems like a good time to deploy a biological yeah. weapon. Yeah. You know, I mean, Saddam had been captured, I think at this point in time, Yep. You know, and, and when I had deployed, and it was just like, okay. Anyway, we digress. Uh, more, more stuff we laugh about in, in hindsight being twenty twenty. Yeah, I look um, back on pictures from the initial invasion, and you know, we're all in mop suits, and we're all, you know, we've got our gas masks on our hip, and I didn't even, I don't even remember that now, but that's what it jars. You know what I remember? I remember getting to Iraq, taking my mask, and my, and my, my, uh, I think it was J list is what they called it or whatever. It was in this vacuum pack suit. And you were told, don't yep. open it, don't open it, don't open yep. it, right? I remember stuffing it in the bottom of my tough box and not touching it until I got back to Demob Station to turn it back in. I didn't yep. touch it. Like, I never even wore it anywhere, not once. Was there ever a thought like, hey, bring your mask? Uh, that's what I did with it. So when do you get to Kuwait for the invasion? When? Yeah. We got there in probably... The end of February, 1st of March in 03. Now, are you guys like uh, chomping at the bit at this point in time? Let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, are you ready to just run over the damn berm? And- in some ways, yes. Uh, in some ways, it was very calm. In fact, I can remember sitting 
I mean, it was very Spartan at that point. There were no fobs. We were essentially living in the desert uh, with shelter halves at, at the first part. And then we had some GP tents set up and somebody moved in some porta potties, which was a huge improvement on our quality of life. Um, but I can remember on the 17th, we had celebrated St. Patrick's Day with uh, Royal Irish Regiment. And why at that celebration, we got a call, hey, get back to your company areas because we've gotten the word to move. So then we moved up that night just a couple miles south of the border. Um, and I can remember somebody had a shortwave radio. So we were listening to the BBC reports. And this is just, you know, the night before the invasion. And, you know, of course, the media has got an incentive to make it sound exciting. But they were they were reporting on all these protests and all these things going on across the world. But for us, it was just perfectly calm. It was like, uh, in some ways, being like coming out of a a huddle in the last seconds of a basketball game, a close basketball game, where everybody in the stands is really, really nervous, but everybody on the court is fairly calm because they have the ability to control what goes on. Right. And so I, I felt that way. I was confident in the training that we had given the Marines, you know, and it was different than a lot of what we had been asked to do. You know, a lot of we had been kind of ostracized in some ways because a lot of the officers in the battalion had wanted to focus on a lot of the conventional type training, lots of fire support stuff, lots of combined arm stuff, very little on the use of force, very, very little on what I thought was going to be in front of us. Like I did not expect the Iraqis to put up a huge amount of defense. I figured they would probably because that was our strength, right? If they if they are they're not going to be the Russian army trying to fight us toe to toe because they just couldn't do it. Sure. Um, but I felt like they would try to do what people had tried to do the U.S. military, you know, work against us and use their strengths to our disadvantage. And so we were going to be faced with a lot of small arms attacks or a lot of people who we weren't sure if they were the enemy or not. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. Um, I don't even remember what your original question was. Well, I just one, went off on a rant for one, a second. One more question on the pre-invasion, because the, the, I just remember me as a captain when, when I had gotten to Iraq. And, and now as, as, a, as a colonel, I, you, know, you learn as you go through your career yep. how to see things from a different picture. I mean, you work tactically, then you, as you grow, you go operationally, and then you go strategically. And, you know, when you see things from a strategic vantage point, you understand things operationally and tactically a little bit better. I say all that to say, did you get a full grasp of how big the plan was for the invasion? Uh, and did it overwhelm you? Because I know me, like, I'd be like, holy shit, like, this, all this is going on at the same time. How is all this going to coordinate and work? Like, I know you just focus on your piece of the pie, right? Like, that's what you yeah. do as a leader. Hey, I can't worry about that with their, with their, I focus on my piece of the pie. But there's always some synchronization on, an, on, a, on a movement that big. Did you get a full understanding of how big this invasion was and what was going on all at the same time? Not really. I mean, we had sat through lots of briefs, you know, division briefs. I can remember right. going to a division orders brief where we had a huge terrain model set up. And most of that stuff I wasn't even really interested in because I knew, to your point, I've got to make sure that Bravo Company 1-5 does what we're supposed to do. And I can't do that if I'm worried about all this other right. stuff. Uh, so, I mean, that quote from Robert E. Lee is pretty – pretty appropriate you know that people will grow fond of war but because it's so horrible we don't but the reason it's appealing is because life becomes very simple 
Like, I don't have to worry about anything else. I just got to worry about what's right in front of me. And what was right in front of me was we had been tasked with uh, securing the first gas oil separation platforms in Iraq. And so we we had gone in and secured those objectives. Uh, But that whole lead up, you know, from the summer of 02 to March of 03, where we had talked about the plan ad nauseum and gone over it and gone over it and gone over it. I mean, it is true. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So once we crossed the border, it was like descending into one of the outer rings of hell. You know, there was everything was on fire. It was pitch black. There was black smoke everywhere. Guys are coming up out of the ground, coming up with their hands up in the air, trying to surrender to us. It was it was like nothing like I don't remember any anybody talking about that during the orders process. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> you you just got to remember to try to keep the Marines on. Like, we're not going to go out and shoot everybody. Let's try to do what we need to do and make it safe. And so as the sun came up on the 21st or 2nd, whatever the set, whatever the day after the initial invasion was, um, you know, I felt like we were in a pretty good place. And, of course, then from that point, once we secured those first objectives, then it would just became about trying to figure out. And this was much more difficult for the staff officers of the battalion because then you really did have to coordinate the movement of all these different people up the few roads from the southern part of Iraq up into Baghdad because that's where we knew we were eventually going. Well, and, and again, it's it's like they never – the plan is always for the assault and the attack. And we all know once you secure right. an objective, we just secure an objective, but nobody plans beyond secure the objective, right? Like That's right. We just call back, okay, we have objective secure – now what? Okay, well, now the staff officers have to all figure out what is what. That's right. Get sit reps in and everything else. So you kind of have this massive lull after everything happens. Um, you know, once you guys had, had gotten your objective secure, did, did you think that it was turn around and go back time? Like, what's kind of going through your mind at that point in time? No, I think there was just an anticipation of, okay, now what? Um we knew we were going to move up into Baghdad, but we weren't sure exactly how that was going to work, who was going to be the lead battalion, which regiment was going to take the lead. Um, and then you're presented with all these other things. Like there was a huge sandstorm at one point where, you know, visibility was zero and, you, you know, people are you're just trying to keep everybody together. You're not even worried about where the enemy is because you don't even know where you are. Um, you know, there was a lull as we waited for logistics to catch up. I think we were outside of D1E and we there was an operational pause, you know, and then. Then it's all the, there's just the human things like, okay, the first mail call in a month and you've got Marines that are puking their guts out because they're trying to gorge themselves on candies and cookies and things that they hadn't eaten in six weeks time. Um, And you're also just trying to figure out what is the next objective, because there was, I don't remember after the first objective, as we cross the border, you know, we were given the objective to secure the bridge across the Saddam Canal. I think that was our next battalion objective. So there was a couple of different there was some some substantial movement to get to that point. And then after that, our next objective was the uh, Al-Azamiya Palace in Baghdad on in North Baghdad on the banks of the Tigris River. Uh, I think those were the only really three battalion objectives that we had in the entire movement. So the rest of the time we were supporting effort for somebody else. Are you surprised at the lack of resistance you're seeing? Uh, on the way to Baghdad, obviously there's resistance once you get there, which we know after the fact, but on your way up there, like you didn't really run into too much as you sort of started to indicate, right? No, we didn't run into too much. I mean, we, we took some initial resistance, uh, going into the first objective and we took some, some small resistance going across the Saddam canal. 
Um, it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know exactly what I expected. I think on some level I expected resistance. I, it was hard for me to gauge how much it was going to be. And you never can really put your mind in somebody else's shoe or, you know, put yourself in somebody else's place. Um, in retrospect, it seems perfectly clear that they were not going to resist. I'd have to go back and think about what I re- actually thought about at the time. I didn't think there was going to be a huge amount of resistance, but um, hey, uh, I don't know if that's an answer to your question no, or not. Like, listen, again, I'm not, you, you can't remember every detail. It's a, that's fine. I don't, I'm not expecting you to. Just some, some things stick out more than others. So once you guys descend on Baghdad and you start to secure – that whole area. Um, if I recall, Marines were on the west side of Baghdad. Is that right? Is that where you guys? We were, were on the on the east side. You were on the east side. Okay. I'm, I'm... Yeah. Anyway. Um... In the in the I mean, we could have transitioned, but we went into uh, we crossed the Tigris and then went up the east side of Baghdad and actually went into Saddam City uh, when it was still called Saddam City, uh, and that was actually. Probably one of the more scary moments Why? for me, because you get a sense for how small you actually are. I mean, it, it's hard for me to describe the number of people that were in Saddam City, and we immediately attracted attention. Um, and you could see the fear in some of the Marines' eyes because it was obvious that if this crowd of people and I don't even I think crowd is probably doing it a disservice. It was a, a horde, a mass, an enormous amount of people. Uh, if they had decided to come after us there, I mean, they could have wiped us out pretty easily. Um, the only reason we were there was because one of the human teams had gotten word that the, uh, you know, the bath party was a big deal at that time. So the bath party headquarters, there was I don't know how many headquarters this party had, but they were all over the place. Bath party headquarters. And we needed to get in there and secure the bath party headquarters before they shredded documents or whatever the heck they do. So this human team had gone in there and we were kind of moved in to support them. And it was only a platoon. And I, I was with that platoon. Uh, but it was obvious that we were we were in the wrong place and shouldn't even have been there. Like the, our only option at that point would have been to start shooting up the, the place. And that would have made things even worse. So we were able to get back out of there. And there was nothing that actually bad happened, but you could just sense like you get that feeling like this is a bad situation and if we don't move somewhere else it's going to get even worse and so yeah. that was probably one of the more fearful because you just don't know what what, what could possibly happen those, none of it's good those are the moments that are crystallizing yeah. memories for you um i have a couple of them you know where where you're you're lost but you're not lost and you're looking around and you're like uh yeah, this is not. I'm, I don't think we should stay here much longer. We need. We need to be like. I'm in the right place, but I'm not supposed to be here. Right. <laughs> well, not only, not only that. It's just you know, you don't ever want to get static for too long in an unfamiliar yes. environment. Uh, it's just it, it's it's very unnerving from that standpoint. Just to, to this point, you guys, had you heard of any casualties at this point, or taken any yourselves? Yeah. So we had taken the fir- our battalion had taken the first casualty, the first ground casualty in the war. Uh, a guy named First Lieutenant Shane Childers. Uh, he was with another company, but he had gotten shot during the first day. Okay. Um, we didn't take any casualties outside of that until we did the push into Baghdad. So that was on April 10th, 2003. I only asked just because I'm wondering if any of there's any part of you that feels threatened, scared, or like, hey, 
you know, I might not come home from this. No, I mean, I guess the thought had been in the back of my mind, but at that time I was a single guy, you know, I I wasn't worried about the consequences. I was the the stereotypical young man that uh, wants to be involved in something important and doesn't worry about the long-term consequences of it. Um, I, I wasn't worried about it in the slightest and action is a great remedy for all things that ill you. So as long as you're busy, you don't have time to do a lot of self-reflection and think about the consequences of what may or may not happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, listen, uh, if you're going to do something stupid, do it quickly. Right. Uh, that, that's, that's right. That's, that's just the, uh, <laughs> the, the way to go through it. Uh, make, make bad, make bad decisions quickly and get them over with. Um, that's so right. you mentioned April 10th and you started the actual invasion. Take me through this whole deal. So we'd gotten word that uh, we were going to secure one of Saddam's palaces. I don't know how many he's got, but there was one of them called the Al-Azamiya Palace. It was on the in North Baghdad on the banks of the Tigris. And so we got word that we were going to, as a battalion, secure that objective. And so we made the the uh, the push. It must have been sometime after midnight, well before the sun came out, because it was dark. Um, and the battalion starts to move. And then, for whatever reason, the lead company uh, gets distracted, lost, and we find ourselves like doing these. We're on the one of the major highways going into Baghdad on the north side of the city, and the battalion's like doing a U-turn and coming back the same way. We had gone through this alleyway and gotten shot up, and then we were doing a U-turn and going back the same way and get shot up. And so, you know, I had the, I knew where we were. And I could see where the objective was. I was following along here. And so I just basically diverted the company toward the objective while the battalion was trying to sort itself out. And so we were the first to the objective. Uh, and we were there just as the sun was coming up and things were kind of eerie, quiet. Like there was no, at that point, nobody was shooting at us anymore. It was just, um, and we had taken some casualties. We had a track that was kind of blown up and had taken some rounds, but once we got to the palace, it was all quiet. And so we're in front of the palace gates and it's only my company now. So we're like, okay, I guess we need to go ahead and screw this thing. Do we knock the gates down? Do we blow up the gates? What do we do? We can't sit here too long. Cause like you said, if you're going to make a bad decision, you got to make it quick. And so my XO jumps off of the track. I was like, hold on, sir. Wait a minute. And he runs to the pedestrian gate. He just opens the gate and walks in and unlocks the gate from the inside. <laughs> and so we just go in. There wasn't anybody there. Um, I got a brilliant idea. Let's just use the door. <laughs> That's right. So I'd like to say that it was this dramatic, you know, climatic scene of a movie where, right, you know, right. that we're, we're bringing the American flag in and people are not letting it hit the ground and we're climbing over each other right. to get inside. But he just walked up to the gate and opened it up. Well, yeah, listen, I, I, you know, uh, everything's worth a shot if you give it a try. That's right. right. Um so once you get in there, like w- w- when when do you actually start seeing your first real taste of true combat? Uh, well, that I mean, if I'm honest, that was probably Fallujah in '04. But okay. on that deployment, we had some guys that we had one of the companies that had come in and started shooting up the place, even though we were the only ones there. So I was trying to run them down. That. We had taken a casualty. One of the other companies had taken a casualty later on that day. Um, we had gotten word that Saddam was holed up in a house just outside the palace. And so they had made a push there. And, you know, at that point, it's hard to remember. We said light skinned Humvees. You know, we didn't have up armored things. Yeah. And so they went out there 
in just a regular Humvee. And uh, one of the gunner sergeants had been shot and killed. We had taken some casualties in the company from the track that had gotten blown up. Uh, so we had to medevac some guys. Um, we didn't lose any Marines killed in Bravo Company during that first deployment, but we had several that had been wounded. As you're going through all this, um, you know, is there a sense of, for you, like, this is what I came here to do. I'm sort of fulfilling what I thought I was, you know, the Marine I wanted to be. I mean, I know you're not thinking about it in that moment, but in retrospect. Ooh, that, that's a good question. I can remember, I kept the journal as we went through this thing. And I can remember that day as we went into the palace, as the battalion is coming in and we're sorting this stuff out, I can remember this feeling coming over me like this was what you were meant to do. Because had our company not been the first of the objective, there's no telling what would have happened. I mean, you kind of think, hey, you you were able to add value in this way. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever had that feeling again, but I had that feeling on that day. And it seems strange to think of it. You, you, your purpose is derived from an event where it wasn't really that dramatic. There wasn't a lot of people getting shot at, but it was just a, co- a lot, a combination of a lot of things that made me feel like, Hey, this is of the things to your, this, to this point in your life, this was your purpose. This is why you were here. Well, I think, you know, again, to put it in context, because I can relate, um, a lot of that feeling of this is what you were meant to do comes from being given an order, being given a task, being given responsibility, accepting it, understanding it, executing it, doing it successfully, and meeting the mission requirements of the bigger picture of being a Marine, an American soldier in the American Army. All that stuff kind of trickles down into it. You know, it's it's a lot of small picture things that feed into a bigger picture that give you this grand sense of accomplishment. Like, I mean, there, there were parts of it in my deployment, and I don't know if this was what you felt in the moment, like literally just made history. Literally, whether yeah. somebody writes about it, whether there's a movie made about it, whether, you know, there, there's a 60-minute documentary on it, I just took part in history. And that's, that's right. pretty damn cool, right? Like, that is a fulfilling thing. Like, you know, I, I always thought of it this way. The Iraqi soldiers I work with, you know, and, and the, the guys who, who trained and worked side by side with me, who saved my life, I saved theirs and everything else. Somewhere in Baghdad, inshallah, as they say, if those folks are still alive, they are telling their family about what the American captain did, what Mark did, and what we did together and what we accomplished, and passing that on to their family for generations. And part of the reason this whole show exists is for that same purpose, that for generations, people will be able to hear, your kids will be able to hear, my kids will be able to hear all these stories and chronicle history and be able to have that moment that says we were part of it. And there is there's there is a lot of emotions in that. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And you know, you don't understand the significance of the things as they happen. You know, reading back through some of the accounts, um, it's funny. You, I still get, I don't know if it's a damaged ego when the things that you thought were a big deal don't get really reported on. Uh, or, or you think, man, it, I thought that was a lot more important than what it was. And then you start to realize that history is made by certain people that, you know, tell their story in certain ways. And, you know, you just take it for what it is. But to your point, you're regardless of how it's reported, it still happened. 
And the impact is not for the reader of some book later on. The impact is for the people that were actually involved in it. And so on that level, I'm, I'm, and I'm for all of my, uh, dissatisfaction or disagreement with how our involvement in Iraq took place. I'm still very proud of the things that we did there because we, we tried to add value, not only to ourselves, but we tried to add value in a lot of different ways to people that we'll never even meet. And so for that, I'm, I'm proud. All right. Without fast forwarding too much. I mean, the deployment ends, everybody comes back home from Bravo company and, and, um, do you, I mean, you get back, did you think it was done? Like, hey, that's the last time I'm ever going to see that place? No, pretty early on, we had uh, been told that, hey, get geared up because we're going back next year. Uh, so strangely, because I, I had gotten injured at officer candidate school and I was six months behind my peers and I had taken over the company at the time that I took over, I was going to be the company commander again for the second deployment. And I don't know any uh, anybody else that was the company commander for two deployments like that. And so not, not it was the same a, company. <laughs> no, no, you're right. Uh, it's, I think it's a function of the personnel system just hadn't caught up yet because I can remember we went into that palace in Baghdad and the next day I was told, Hey, uh, shoot, I can't remember the corporal's name, but he had gotten orders to recruiting duty. So we were going to have to fly him out of Baghdad. So he could go on recruiting duty. I'm like, I'm thinking this is, you gotta be kidding me. But that was the personnel system. It was not caught up yet. So having said all that, it was, I was going to be company commander for uh, the second deployment. And so once we got back, we changed out all the Marines. You know, you're doing through your standard personnel rotation. I think I was the only guy in the company that had the same job for both deployments. You know, team leaders became squad leaders. Squad leaders became platoon sergeants. got transferred out. The lieutenants changed. Some of them left. Some of them stayed in different jobs. Uh, so the difficulty for me was looking at you guys and saying, okay, we're going to do this just like we did last year. And everyone's looking at you like, well, I don't remember how we did that because I wasn't even here. Or I was in a different job. So I gained a new appreciation for guys like Nick Saban who are constantly changing out their assistant coaches but still are able to achieve results. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. they can't just rely on SOPs. It's like you're dealing with different personalities and the way you communicate to them is going to be different than you did somebody else but you're still able to get results. And so uh, I've gained a new appreciation for that because it, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Um, as you get ready for the train up of this thing and you're sort of watching what is unfolding, um, you know, in the big picture in Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, and you have this base of knowledge that you've already done this once. I mean, I, I have to feel like you're, you're super confident uh, in going back in the second time. Well, it's it's funny you say that because the initial push <clears throat> we had been focused on like more conventional type operations, you know, big movements with large organizations. And we really thought we were going to be involved in some pretty significant combat. At that time in the battalion, they didn't think we were going to be doing lots of hostile use of force or authorized use as a deadly force and shoot no shoot scenarios. Right. The second deployment. We kind of thought, okay, now we're in the pacification phase, for lack of a better term. And so the shoot, no shoot scenarios, um, those types of things are going to take higher priority. And yet then we find ourselves in Fallujah, uh, which was a difficult transition, which we can talk about. But I felt very confident in my level of knowledge. And because we had trained to that standard before the first deployment, so even though Marines were in different jobs, they still were looking at the world through that lens of I've got to be discriminant in my use of force. I cannot go in there and, with the idea that I'm just going to get my war on and shoot up the place. 
I'm going in there to achieve a result, to generate a positive outcome. I'm going in there essentially to de-escalate every situation. Sometimes I may have to use force to do that, but we're, that's our goal essentially is still to de-escalate the situation, which was not a perspective that everybody else had. No, and it's interesting because, again, we talked about, remember, you know, the banner, mission accomplished, right? Um, yep. And jokingly before I talked about, yeah, we all had a plan until we had to exit, then we didn't have a plan. Um, and, and the exit plan quickly became, well, hearts and minds, right? Let's yep. let's win over the Iraqi people. Let's, you know, because we didn't want to be seen as the aggressors. So let's win over the Iraqi people. And, of course, they'll fall in love with us and embrace democracy and, and the world will be a much better place. Ha! Anyway, um, so, you know, that took hold very, very quickly. So it, it makes sense that you say that, that that was sort of a little bit of a a, a, a flip or at least a, a, a turn uh, strategically from what we wanted to accomplish. But had you even heard of Fallujah when you first realized you were going there on your second deployment? We had gotten some security briefs. You know, we were taken over. The 82nd had turned over, had taken responsibility for Ambar from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were going into that area of Ambar that Fallujah was in. And so in reading the briefs and, you know, studying about the security situation, we had known Fallujah, or we had known what it was. But because the 82nd was trying to cover a huge geographical area with the limited number of people that they had, there were just places that they wouldn't go or that they wouldn't go for long periods of time. And so I think Fallujah was one of their I don't want to say no go areas, but one of the areas that they would try to avoid for the for the most part, which is, I think, part of the reason why those Blackwater guys ran into the trouble that they did, because they, you know, they went into a hard target and uh, weren't prepared for what was awaiting them. Yeah, and I guess in, in parlance, uh, the, the people who aren't in the military who have never been to Iraq would understand. Picture like, you know, uh, you, you will appreciate this. Louisiana as like the idea of Baghdad, and then Anbar is the idea of Texas being right next to it. Like it's that sort of big, it's a whole province that takes up the entire western half of the country of Iraq called Anbar. And, you know, Fallujah's right on the border right there between Baghdad and, and the Anbar province. It's right there. Uh, it's the first major city you're going to hit once you cross out of Baghdad into into Anbar province. And, uh, you know, I was there in 05, and I, I, that's the one place I feared going. Like, when they told me I need you to go to Fallujah, that's when my, my, my pucker factor went all the way up. Yeah. I mean, because all that bad stuff had already happened. You know, Blackwater, yeah. the first battle of Fallujah and everything else, yeah. and it was just, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, Abu Ghraib just, you know, took hold, and they were, they were the Marines were hung from the bridge, and, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was, Bad place to be, to say the least. Um, when, when do you get there the second time? So when do you get to Fallujah? It's funny. We we actually did the same movement almost the same day a year later. So we started in Kuwait and moved up the same roads. And so it was fascinating for me uh, to see the change in the environment a year later. You know, Saddam had essentially tried to starve the marsh arabs by damming up the euphrates mm-hmm. and, and when we went up the first time it was like trying to drive across or what i would envision trying to drive across the moon very very dusty no water anywhere and yet only a year later when the dams had been busted and you know we started to divert some water back to where it was naturally supposed to go things were lush you start to recognize some of the the pictures of what the Bible talks about and the analogies in the Bible. And it looked more like what I would have thought that part of the world would look like uh, in some ways with palm trees. And, you know, it was, it was just very, it was 
it was jarring. That's one of the reasons why I remembered it. Um, so it was a year later that we made that push up into uh, into that part. We took the long way up and, you know, they made it up there. So once you get on ground, you're settling in. I mean, you, you know, because, again, if that's March, late March, it, you know, April 13th, obviously, is, is about a month later, uh, four, you know, three, four weeks later. So are you settled in by the time April 13th, 2004 rolls around? No. So General Mattis, who was the division commander at the time, his plan had been to work with the local local Iraqis. You know, he had spent a lot of time putting out guidance that he wanted each of the officers in the division to read. And I can remember some guys kind of taking uh, an offense to that, like, well, the general doesn't even trust us. But a lot of the things he was putting down to us was because I, I think he probably had a feeling that some of his subordinates just weren't getting it. They thought that they were going to go in and get their war on when the reality was, no, we're going to go in there much like a, you know, a later version of Vietnam where we're going to be working with local forces. We're going to be trying to provide stability to the region. We're not going in there to shoot the place up. We're going in there to be the biggest bouncer in the room and we're there to keep the peace. And so his plan had been to go in. We were going to assign smaller areas to each of the battalions and give us an opportunity to really get to know people, build relationships with them provide security and then start to restore all those services that people are that really want. I mean, people essentially just want security, water and electricity. And so we were going to be the ones that were going to set the conditions for that to happen. We were living in a. I'm not sure what to call it because it wasn't a fob yet. You know, none of those things really existed at, at the what we become what we became accustomed to doing. And we just started doing a transition with the 82nd, started getting to know some of their their people. Some of the, They were introducing us around to different people. And then the guys from Blackwater get hung up, you know, probably our second week that we're there. And then it was immediate transition. I know that General Mattis was not a fan of the plan to go into Fallujah, uh, but we did. And so then that decision was made, and then we quickly transitioned to uh, that type of urban assault instead of what we were originally there to do. When you make that transition, um, is it not that you guys are unprepared, but how much was it a sort of mental shift, mental focus? Cause as you were talked about, we're talking about rules of engagement, shoot, don't shoot. Now we're going into an actual, you know, assault mentality. The honest answer is it probably wasn't that big, wasn't that hard a transition. Right. It was more comfortable for a lot of the Marines to transition that sure. way than yeah. it was the other way. You know, a, a lot of it, because the, the type of environment that General Mattis was asking us to participate in requires wisdom, requires judgment, requires restraint. You know, it requires a little bit of discipline, self-discipline. That's harder for people to do than it is to say, all right, now we're getting online and we're going in and we're going to secure this objective. Like, OK, that makes that simple. I don't have to think about a lot of stuff. I'm just going to go in and do it. And so I think that there was almost a sense of relief on some people's part that we were going to go in and do this. And of course. Again, you make a bad decision quickly, right? So it doesn't give you time for self-reflection. You don't think about the consequences. You don't think about, hey, what's going to happen if, you know, we take 30 percent casualties. It's all about just getting the objective done. All right. So now let's come upon the morning of April 13th, 2004. Um, to this point, I mean, are you seeing a lot of resistance or, or operations picking up? I, I mean, or are you guys just kind of settling in? What's sort of a little bit of the background? I'm sorry. Could you say it again? You cut out on me. Sure. No, I said the, the morning leading up to the morning of April 13th, 2004. Are you guys 
seeing a lot of resistance? Are you are you in day to day contact with the enemy? I mean, kind of give us the background of of what is leading up to that morning. Yeah, so we had, uh, you know, we made the initial push into the southwestern corner of the city, the industrial area, and we had moved forward. And essentially, the, what it had what had gone off about the first week was we'd meet resistance, we'd get into a firefight, they would back off we'd hold tight. And then in the nighttime, we would kind of move forward because they don't, the Iraqis at that time weren't doing anything at night. Most of the people in the world don't do anything at night. So we were able to use our technology to kind of secure a foothold. And then the sun would come up, they'd realize that we were closer, there'd be a big firefight and then they'd back off. And so we were kind of inching our way into the city. And I can't remember any of the phase lines or routes because they've changed a couple of times, but we, then there was an operational pause as you know, I find out later that there was some negative publicity about a hospital being bombed. And so politically, politically, um, there was the decision was made, hey, we got to we got to solve this. We got to have some negotiations. And so as a result, we got we were told that we couldn't move on offensive actions. Unfortunately, nobody told the guys on the other side what our plans were. And so they just kept shooting at us, which is, you know, understandable. Uh, and we had taken a, uh, a place that we were calling Shithead Alley because it was an alley that was a couple blocks ahead of us, and that's where all those guys were kind of congregating. Uh, we had one of our lieutenants had been killed. Um, we had taken some casualties, I think, on the 9th or 10th of April. And so we had some positions out forward that we were trying to resupply. So on the 13th, I get a call to go back to the battalion uh, area for I, I can't even remember why. And we had two Amtraks that had been assigned to the company. And so um, the suggestion had been made to use the Amtraks to move move a little forward and drop off some ammunition for our OPs that were forward of our main company line. That started to happen as I was back at the battalion area. And unfortunately, one of the tracks, as you would expect, attracted some attention and took an RPG or some sort of round and was fired on. And so it knocked out calm in the track and the driver couldn't talk to anybody. And so diverted and was just trying to get out of the kill zone and ended up far outside of our area, well south of where the last report position was going to be with a, with essentially a squad of Marines on it. Uh, and then the track commenced to catch and fire and burn it. So, the other track didn't know where its companion was and was trying to figure out where it was. And so it was reporting its location. So in the battalion CP, we get a call that, Hey, something bad has happened. I'm trying to make my way back to the company area. We're getting reports from the track. The only track we can talk to is in the wrong location. And as I'm traveling back to the company area, I can see the black smoke from the burning track and it's nowhere near where we're being told the track is. Uh, and so the 81 platoon was our quick response force. They showed up, we had a tank and they're trying to go off these radio contacts or radio reports of where the track is. And I, I'm trying to communicate to them. Like it is not there. It is over there where the black smoke is coming from. And so at some point I jump off and I'm trying to lead this, you know, it's like the perfect storm. Nobody's calm is working. You can't get talked to the right people. Everyone's trying to go off of what they think is the right thing. And we're getting shot at on the way. So we end up, uh, it was my first sergeant, myself, a couple of the Marines, and we kind of end up in front of this column moving to the track. Uh, 
and I can see, you know, all the houses in that part of Fallujah were these compound type structures where they have high walls and gates and the gate to one of these places is open. And there's a, a couple of guys, maybe one guy laying in the gate. Uh, and so I'm like, well, that's gotta be where the Marines are. Cause I can see the track. Now the track is off, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards away, but the Marines, as soon as they got out of the track, made their fought their way into this house. <clears throat> and so I run in, uh, jump over the guy who, Thankfully, he was dead and didn't try to shoot me. But then the Marines are all standing there with their rifles pointed at me. So luckily, they didn't shoot me either. So then we kind of arranged the defense. Uh, we got a, a situation. Uh, we figured out what the situation was. We had one of the lieutenants was very severely wounded, and we it became a priority to get him out. I didn't think he was going to live, but he ended up living. Uh, we the Humvee that my first sergeant was in was there. And so we loaded up the casualties on the Humvee and I had a couple of Marines volunteer and they drove it back. Then we had a tank show up. Uh, you know, it was, you know, one of those situations where you've got a thousand things going on and we were trying to figure out how do we get the track back and how do we keep people from shooting at us? And I was trying to convince the battalion that, Hey, I know we're not supposed to be doing offensive actions, but we can move our battalion line up to this position. Cause we were, you know, several blocks now, probably four or five more blocks into the city. I was like, there's no reason for us to back up. I know the word is that we're not supposed to be attacking, but this has just kind of happened. Now let's, let's secure this line. Cause I was pretty confident that we could do that with the company that was behind us. The decision was made that we were going to pull back. And so then it, then it became a situation of, okay, how do we get all this stuff back? If we're not going to stay here and we were prepared to stay there until we were resupplied, um, you know, we had been asked just to leave the, to leave the track. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, we're not going to do that. So let's figure out how to do this. You know, we're, we've got enough ammo. We can hold out. Um, and so we hooked the track up to the tank and the tank pulled it back. I'm sure that's, I'm sure some tanker listening to this is probably upset that we did that. Uh, but that's what we did. Um, and we were able to get everything back. And so, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember what the original question was. I feel like I've gone way off topic. No, well, that listen, was, uh, you're, you're detailing the events of of what eventually led to your Silver Star, but I think I think you're you're leaving out some of the um, amount of resistance you saw along the way. Um, at least according to the citation, you are. So uh, I'd like to fill in some of the gaps if we can here. Um, so when you you use the smoke, the burnt the smoke to to figure out where the vehicle is. Once you get there. Um, but you, you, your convoy on the way there met a lot of resistance, correct? Yep. Okay. Uh, are you taking any other casualties at this point in time? Like, how much gunfire are we talking as well? We took quite a bit of gunfire going in. I can remember, you know, little details st- stand out. You know, you see around something bounce off the ground in front of you right before you step there. Little, little things like that. There was RPGs that, and luckily for us at that time, I think most of the people that had been involved in the fighting weren't all that trained and all that experienced. And so we had, you know, RPGs come flying past us and they didn't explode for whatever reason. Um, you know, the, their accuracy wasn't that great. It was very apparent though, you know, as you're, as the convoys pushing, they at least knew what target reference points were because they had these little cans of olive oil sat out across the road. And I didn't, understand why that was there, but then it became pretty apparent. Oh, that's why it's there. Cause it's every time we hit one of those oil cans and then we get shot at. Um, but yeah, we took, we took a, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there were any casualties sustained 
on the push to the Marines. I don't, I can't honestly answer that. I don't know. You're encountering enough resistance that you actually get out of your vehicle and run on foot, right? Yeah. So just by the nature of it, I I had been in the back and in the Humvee. And so it was obvious that the person in the front was listening to radio reports for the track. So they kept trying to get back to where I knew that the Marines were not, they were trying to go to the one place that there was no trouble. But that's where the Marine on the track, you know, he was answering the question, you know, where are you? He, was, he, was, he thought the other track was right there. He couldn't see. He didn't know what was going on. But I could see it just because I was I had a different perspective. And so the only way I could communicate to them was to get out and run to the front. Of course, you're trying to get out and run to the front and then they take off. So then you like run back to the vehicle, you're trying to catch up. So it was a lot of back and forth. Uh, luckily, I was a big runner at that time. So I was in a little bit better shape. But uh we finally get up to the front, and I was trying to convince them, like, no, are, are we you, need to go this are way. Are you being shot at as you're running back and forth in the street? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah but it, like, it wasn't very accurate, but, Serpentine, yeah, there were some Serpentine. shots going back and forth. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, did anybody say to you after the first time you ran and then got back, like, sir, stay in the vehicle? I don't, I don't know. Okay. That's a good question. I don't honestly know. Right. My radio man, and I, I had taken his rifle. Uh, because I figured if I was going to run at that point, I was just carrying a pistol. And so I figured I might need a rifle to do something. So I took his rifle and he stayed in the Humvee because Lord knows he didn't want to be running back and forth with the radio like that. And I was just trying to get to the front of the column so I could communicate to them in person. Um, and then my first sergeant did the same thing. He jumped off and was like, Hey, you can't go by yourself. I think that was probably the only thing he told me is like, Hey, you, you shouldn't be doing this by yourself. He's like, you need to have somebody with you. I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Okay. Well, th- that's fair. Um, so when you get to the front of the column and you you basically uh, are are informing them what's going on, um, you spend some time actually, you know, coordinating the counterattack as well, right? You're returning fire and coordinating the counterattack. Well, they had, the Marines in the house had already kind of set things up. Now their platoon commander had been shot and was very severely, or had been he he had t- basically taken that, an RPG to the back of his leg. That was the lieutenant you uh, were talking about, right? Correct. Okay. And I was afraid he was going to bleed out. Um, so we were trying to get him medevac. But the staff sergeant that was there, uh, Staff Sergeant Segredo, Ismail Segredo, uh, he had already arranged the defense. And so he had already assigned Marines and he was already redistributing ammo. He had done, you know, figured out where the ammo needed to be. And so he had that under control. So I, I tried to add value to the things that he wasn't able to do. Like I was communicating with battalion, trying to tell them what the situation actually was. I was the one trying to get, uh, resources available so we could tow the track back. I was the one trying to arrange for the medevac. So I was trying to add value in that way, whereas I didn't get involved too much in the defensive perimeter because he had, you know, he was already focused on that. Yeah, but you're, you're doing all this from an exposed position, right? Like you're not in the vehicle on the radio making all the calls. You're, you're out on the ground with everybody. Well, no, we were inside that compound at that point. Okay. You know, so once we get the in compound. There. Okay. But it's just the yeah, back so of, inside the house. of running. Um, you mentioned the, 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 the tank that you had to, or the, you know, APC, whatever you want to call it, that had to be the amphibious vehicle, uh, that had to be towed back. Um, did you, did you know who the deceased Marine inside the vehicle was? I did not. Uh, it was a guy named, uh, Jason Cole, uh, but they had only been assigned to us maybe the day prior, maybe two days prior. Uh, you know, in retrospect, that, it might have been a little foolish to try to assign tracks to help us do a resupply, but it, it's 
tempting when you have those tools available to try to find out a use for them. Um, I don't know if I would have done it any differently than I think we probably would have tried to do it the same way. Um, but ultimately that, you know, that's, unfortunately he was the driver of the track that was ultimately killed. I was, I don't know if he was trapped inside the vehicle or shot beforehand. Um, but we, the good thing is that we were able to get him back inside the track. And so, um, we didn't have to leave him there. Was getting out of there as difficult as getting in? No, getting out was in some, it was much easier because, um, one of the things we're good at in the Marine Corps is putting up a stiff defense. And so the insurgents, once they started shooting at us, recognized that they weren't going to win that fight. They started to back off pretty quickly. They had tried to attack the Marines in the house when the Marines first got in there. And, of course, the Marines put up a good defense, and they they were more than a hard target. So if these insurgents, like the one guy laying in the, in the, uh, in the gate had found out, the more these guys recognize, look, this is going to be a short lifespan if I try to attack these Marines, I'm probably going to pull back and wait. So by the time we actually were able to get back, you know, the shooting had stopped and they had pulled back and it moved off. I think we had, I'm trying to remember now, I think we had had some close air support come in and um, the 81's platoon commander was the one responsible for that. And I can't remember exactly what the efficiency of that was. Uh, but I do know that he was talking either to helicopters. I don't, I don't know if they were fixed wing or not. I'll have to go back and look at some notes. I don't remember that detail of it, but I do know he was talking to somebody with respect to air, um, close air support. Now, do I, do I understand this as everybody is moving out? You're, you're walking your way out as the last person there. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I definitely didn't want to leave anybody behind. Uh, and I felt comfortable enough that we, things were calm enough, um, that we walked, you know, we walked out. So. I think it was you know, my first sergeant and myself that we, we made sure everybody had gotten out. You get back to, to base after all this has happened. Um, any sense of like, what the hell just happened? I almost just died kind of deal? Or are you sort of still in robot mode of knockout task, knockout task, knockout task, take care of troops kind of deal? Yeah, I was, I was really tired <laughs> because you're running around in helmet and flight for several hours. Uh, I just wanted to sit down, drink some water, and then make sure everybody else was okay. So I don't remember doing a debrief or, you know, kind of an after action. I don't remember any of that. It was essentially, okay, what has happened? Uh, General Mattis came out the next day, I think, maybe the day after. And we didn't even really talk about the event. It was, we stood on the rooftop of where our company was, and he, we looked off toward the Euphrates River. And he said, hey, see that building? And it was kind of a tall building on the banks of the Euphrates. He said, that's going to be your next objective. I'm going to call down in a couple of days, and that's where you're going. I said, okay. Yes, sir. Uh, did you find it odd at all that you're sitting here just having a one-on-one with the general? I mean, yeah, you're, it's you're funny. a company-grade officer at this point in time. Like, most of those engagements with the general when you're a company-grade officer aren't involved with, hey, by the way, that's your next objective. You know, like usually the battalion commander gets that first before you do. That's right. No, but that's the type of guy General Mattis was or is. Um, you know, he he definitely wanted to see things at the ground level. He wanted to to see things from uh he wanted to know what that little pin on the map what it actually looked like in reality. So he went out there and we sat and talked about the objective. Um and he didn't spend a lot of time there, but you know, 
the good thing about it, you talk about it from a leadership perspective is I can, I recognized in myself the burst of energy that came from the division commander coming down and saying, Hey, I'm going to call down here and that's your objective. I'm giving you that objective. And so, you, you know, not that we would have had any problem feeling responsible for accomplishing the mission, but it's hard not to feel more responsible for it when you've got the division general coming down and tasking you with it. Yeah. Like that's, um, that was the next thing out of my mouth as you said that, um, you know, cause I kind of just picture the two of you standing there, like, you know, on top of a building, because, you know, I know what Iraq looks like and just the sun setting a little bit and this big, towering, imposing figure of General yeah. Mattis is sitting next to little old you and he's got his arms folded. Should I build over there? That's next, right? You know, and you just – that level of leadership, that personal touch to leadership uh, is the difference between leadership and great leadership, right? Um, you know, and, and again, I, I think you would have felt the same – let me rephrase that – I think you would have felt a similar feeling if that was your battalion commander standing there giving you the same instruction. But it's just one of those things. It's the personal order, the verbal communication, the one-on-one connection. Um, now, all of a sudden, it's like, I can't let him down, right? Yeah, I mean, if you judge leaders by – paper, it's like, okay, yeah, big deal, right? But the conversation is now it became personal for you. That's right. And leaders are judged or people judge the priorities of leaders based off of where they are. And you think of all the places that General Mattis could be because his responsibility was wide as the division commander, but he chose to be right there. And so you think, okay, he thinks this is important. And by extension, he thinks that I'm and we are important. So therefore, you know, you can't help but take that on. Uh, Unfortunately, we got called the next day and we were going to leave Fallujah and go back to what we originally came there to do. So that <laughs> never actually happened, one of those but it was a good moment. No, I, I listen, uh, I, I think that's awesome. And again, I, I certainly can relate to that whole deal. Um, when high level officers reach down to touch low level people um, for things that go beyond a handshake and a coin and, you know, the pomp and circumstance stuff that they normally do that we get yeah. roped into, Hey, just stand in formation. So this guy can come down take a look at you, tell you how great he is and leave. That's right. Um, you know, the, the idea that someone can relate to you one-on-one, person-to-person, not general to captain, you know, but just Mad Dog and Jason, right? <laughs> you know, just, just two That's guys right. hanging out, uh, I think, changes the game. Uh, at least it would for me, and, and as you said, it did for you. Uh, when do you when do you hear that a Silver Star is being recommended or awarded to you for the actions on April 13th, which, again, uh, coincidentally enough, is now, uh, what, uh, 19 years ago? Yeah, I actually was informed kind of by accident. Uh, there was a, a staff NCO that was in the admin chain. You know, of course, these awards for as, as much attention as we give them, the whole system is – there's a lot of problems with the system as it stands, but uh, we give them a lot of attention, and so in – part of the review process, one of the staff NCOs had seen it and had made mention to me, Hey, sir, your silver star is going through, uh, you know, and I, that was the first I had heard of it. I'm like, what'd you, what was that? <laughs> um, so at that time, you know, you, we had the, the advent of the Marine online system where you see all these, all, you know, basically your admin file and, the award recommendations. And then, so it's, then it pops, starts popping up on your recommended award. So it was, uh, 
it was a little surreal to be honest because we had it uh there was three other marines that had been um awarded or recognized for silver stars on that day um and so it was a big day yeah um when is the actual ceremony when do you receive it it wasn't until 05 um probably fall of 05 you know at that point i was uh the inspector instructor for weapons company 323 which just means i was the active duty guy in charge of the reserve unit you know i had met my now wife between deployments to iraq she's from louisiana as well and we were introduced by my second cousin Wait a second, so, you were home for like three months bro i know <laughs> We, we were set up on a, well, I say we were introduced. My wife says we were set up on a blind date, okay. um, but I was home for Christmas in 03. And my second cousin had said, Hey, there's this girl I want you to meet. I was like, perfect. Uh, so we went out and, you know, the next thing you know is we're getting engaged after my second deployment. It's, it's funny when you think about it now, because we correspond a lot on with letters and, it's one of the things that I think that our society has lost is that with so much instant communication, there's so much that it it just becomes less valuable. And so when you have a chance to write a letter and you have to think about what you want to say, you're only going to think you're only going to write down what you think is important. Uh, And therefore the communication just becomes that much more valuable. So even though she and I weren't in the same vicinity for the first eight months that we knew each other, we got to know each other a lot better than we would have had we just, you know, said, oh, what do you want to watch on Netflix tonight or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, there was no Netflix and chill back then. Uh, That's right. My, how we've, I'd like to say evolved, but it's more like devolved. But again, yes. no, no, another podcast episode. That's uh, right. That's awesome. Good for you. Uh, that That's great. Congratulations to you and, and your wife and still together to this day. So, God, you know, God bless you. Defying all odds on, on many fronts there, Jason. That's right. Um, so you get awarded the Silver Star. Now, I mean, when you leave Iraq the second time, like, you had to think at this point in time, like, that's not the last time I'm going to be there. No, it's funny because I had done nothing but deployments and overseas stuff. The right. first, at that point, I'd been in the Marine Corps 10 years. You know, I'd done a med float in 1-2. I'd been on security forces for a year. I'd been to 1-5, been to Iraq twice, Okinawa. Um, you know, that's really what I thought the Marine Corps was. And so you look back on it now and I didn't do any deployments, uh, the second 10 years I was there, it just kind of worked out. I kept going from independent duty to independent duty, getting selected for stuff. And you, you go, you don't, at that time I left Fallujah or left uh, the time I left one five in Iraq, I really thought to your point, I'd be back again. In fact, my plan had been to get back to, uh, back to the operating forces. Um, in fact, I had actually, tried out for um a good buddy of mine his brother was in delta had said there was a shortage of officers so when i was in when i came back to baton rouge he said hey the marine corps is opening up the opportunity to try out and so i went to camp dawson and went through their in doc process and i was actually dropped on the last day uh just because I didn't make my time hacks, but you know, that's what I thought the war was going to be. So I was already thinking about doing that and it just didn't work out for me. Um, in retrospect, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause I don't know if my wife and I would still be married. If that I was did that literally lifestyle. the next question I was going to ask you, it was, I mean, you know, it, 
It was the next question out of my mouth was, do you think you were when your wife would still be together? Had you kept the operational tempo up of a typical Marine? No. And sadly, I know your audience is veterans. And so a lot of guys will probably identify with this. Um, you know, that whole course, I was just impressed with the professionalism of it. And you don't really know anybody by name because they've given everybody a, a color and a number. And so I at the Naval War College back in 2010 was working out in the gym and I'd see this guy every couple of days, you know, we'd be working out at the same time. And I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. Where do I know that guy from? And he comes up to me. It was an army officer. He came up to me and he's like, hey, were you in Camp Dawson? And I was like, yep, that's where we knew each other. Crazy. And he's like, he goes like, I, I, he goes, whatever happened to you? You were doing good. And I was like, yeah, I ran into a problem on the last thing. And I, you know, I didn't make my time hack, whatever it was. And he's like, I said, what about you? He's like, well, I'm here because they needed to give me a break. And the guy looked like a shell of the guy that I remembered. Like he just looked worn out. Like, and and you find out it was like one deployment, one deployment after another, after another, after another, like how much, how much can this guy take? And so luckily somebody recognized that we're going to send this guy to the Naval War College and give him some time to decompress for a year because he, you know, he, and he said to me, he goes, it's not what you think it is. I'm like, Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, again, there's there's upsides and downsides to everything, right? Like, yep. there's no right or wrong answer. And uh, listen, I've interviewed people who have been on both sides of the ledger. You know, uh, guys who have done the 12, 13, 14 deployments and and seem to to be okay, and guys who have done twelve and thirteen, fourteen, and you know, not okay. Um, yeah. But you know, it's just one of those things where uh, you know, sort of the decisions you make shape who you are and the life that you're going to lead, and and I don't say that to be prophetic or anything, but when it comes to the military and, you know, being part of a nation that was at war for 20 years, you know, nobody would be wrong for feeling had I taken a different path, I would see, have seen different results in any size, way, shape or form, no matter how big or no matter how small. I think that's all fair for all of us to at least have that thought. Just, you know, don't let it consume you because obviously you can't change any of it. But, you know, um, I, I say this repeatedly. The military has a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be, regardless of <laughs> what you I think want, that's right. what you believe, and what you think is best. The military has a, has a way uh, of of giving you exactly what you need. If if and I can't believe I'm going to use these words, but if you trust the military, um, which is a very difficult task, um, yeah. but if you trust in the leadership in the military. Uh, you'll end up where you're supposed to be and, and, and it should theoretically work out for the best, uh, all things considered. All right. So you end up with the rest of these jobs, by the way, and I don't want to fast forward too much, but you did recruiting, um, for the entire state of New Jersey, which, yep. uh, involves a lot of hair gel. Um, as a native New Yorker, I can talk about my brethren across the river. Um, so th- that must've been fun. There was a lot of fist pumping going on in Jersey. I assume. No, honestly, it was not something that I wanted to do. In fact, uh, you know, as I started to become a major, you get screened for recruiting. The Marine Corps really values recruiting station commanders or really values the, the job of recruiting. And so it selects people to be recruiting station commanders. And those are all majors. And so it's not something that I wanted to do. Uh, of course, you know, the Marine Corps has a way of giving you what you don't want. Uh, but in retrospect, it was the, the best job that I had because it is all about leadership. You know, you are. You've got dispersed operations. You've got Marines all over the state. 
You've got to give them the authority to do what they need to do, and you've got to accept the responsibility. You've got to help them solve unique problems. You've got to send, send some of these Marines are in leadership positions for the first time, and a lot of Marines go to recruiting duty. They're not cut out for it. You know, it's essentially a sales job. And many Marines and military members join the military because they don't want to have to do, they don't want to have to deal with people on that level. You know, it becomes life is really simple when you're wearing your salary on your collar or on your sleeve and you've got a role that you're playing and it it's a little self-defense that comes into it. And now you've got high school students that don't care anything about what it is that you care about. It it can be uh it can be humbling. And so it was just great trying to help Marines solve the problems that were in front of them, talking about leadership, trying to help them solve problems. I, and I really love New Jersey. You know, it gets a bad rap for, you know, places like Newark and uh, the Turnpike. But you find out the reason they, they're called a garden state for the re, for a reason. It's most of the state is just beautiful. Um, the people were great. Um, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was, it was busy now. I'm not, I'm not going to, and it was stressful, but, it was it was a good experience. And for the first time in your life, you had good pizza and good bagels. Congratulations! That's right. There you go. That's right. So, uh, th- there is that. Uh, I live in Georgia now, and I haven't seen a good pizza or bagel for years, uh, unless when I go home to visit my family in New York. So there there is that, and uh, I say that with one hundred percent certainty. So anybody would like to debate me on it, go ahead. We'll have a long conversation. Another another epi- another type of podcast. Yes, You've yeah. got all kinds of ideas. <laughs> it's a never ending circle of, of, of good idea fairy. Here we go. Uh, okay. So the, I just want to spend one more thing with the Royal Marines. Like when you find out that you're, this is where you're going to end up going. Uh, one, do you know, this is your last assignment? I do not know. It's my last okay. assignment. I, uh, in the back of my mind, we have thought about this. You know, my family has a farm here in Mount Hermon, Louisiana. Uh, my parents were getting older. My wife and I, we had built a house here while we were on, you know, my last job before going out to uh, to the UK because we kind of figured at some point we would be here. But I wasn't sure when I wasn't sure exactly what I, what we wanted to do. Uh, but ultimately, it came it got to the point where moving every couple of years became more difficult. You know, most things get easier the more often you do it. But moving is not one of those things, especially when you've got kids. Yeah. My parents were getting older. Uh, my wife's parents, uh, her father had passed away and her mother was not in the best of health. And so, you know, you kind of want your kids to be from someplace. You want them to have a relationship with family. It was just time. Um, I was looking at promotion to colonel and being sent to probably another school and then life in the Pentagon, putting together PowerPoint presentations. And it just wasn't that appealing to me. Um, and I always would tell Marines that we're looking to get out of the Marine Corps, you know, don't get out of the Marine Corps because you don't like what it is that you're doing in the Marine Corps, because that will always change. But if you're going to get out, you need to get out because there's something that you want to do that the Marine Corps cannot offer. And in my case, the thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to try to make our family's farm a viable business. I wanted it to succeed into another generation. And I did not want it to fall out of the family just because I wasn't willing to give it a go. Um, and, I, and, you know, on some level, too, I the Marine Corps has a, has a way of tempting you to identify, to have that singular role identity where you then become the colonel or you become uh, the billet holder. And I didn't want to be that guy in the VFW that was sitting in a bar trying to convince people that it used to be important. 
I wanted to actually, I wanted to be able to make a break and have an identity outside the Marine Corps. Um, and so be careful what you wish for, right? So now I'm now on a farm in Louisiana trying to convince people that I used to be a Marine. Yeah, well, listen, I, it makes you feel any better. I, I have a podcast trying to convince people I'm important, so there is that. <laughs> and welcome. Hey, you're here. Uh, good stuff. No, but um, you end up you end up taking this job. When when do you know that the, the position with the Royal Marines is your last? Uh, probably about 2015. Uh, there was a couple things that just added up, and that was, that was going to be it. And, of course, the Marine Corps, you've got to go through your retirement uh, courses and all that stuff. And so administratively – there was a lead up and I had to make a decision. It was, it was essentially as I was coming into zone for Colonel and I was like, nah, this is, this is going to be it for me. Um, so I just started the process. What do you miss the most about the Marine Corps at this point? Um, the Marines, the Marines, I don't miss the organization at all. I miss it. I miss the, uh, the people that I served with. And that's no, that's really no fault of the, the organization. You understand? I mean, it's just, the nature of being in those types of organizations, the longer you stick around those organizations, the further you get away from the jobs you actually join to do. And the more it becomes about politics, not in the Democrat versus Republican sense, but politics in the sense that you've got to work for this general, or you've got to get this billet, you know, you've got to, if you're going to stick around, there's things that you have to do in order to stick around. And those things just weren't as interesting to me as other things. So that's why I decided to, to go do something else. Yeah. Um, you don't get a class early on in your military career about playing the game in the military and how uh, if you'd like to stick around a really long time and get to certain places that uh, that is a critical part of doing it. Um, you know, sometimes uh, being passionate and desiring to do what is right leads to outcomes that are less than favorable in big picture terms at times. Um what you said. Yeah, but to your point, too, like if you trust the, the military has a way of putting people in the jobs that they're meant to do. And, right. and being a general officer is a skill unto itself. Like there are certain guys that are cut out for this and certain guys are not. I just didn't think that I was. Uh, and I and it's not because I'm better than them. It's because we're just different. You know, they've got the ability to do things. I've got a good friend of mine that's now a brigadier general and he, he's going to go far in the Marine Corps, but he, his personality is a lot more suited to that than I, mine is. Well, it's I would just argue, the way that it is. And again, this is another podcast, but I would argue that there is a lack of diversity in personality at the general officer level to its detriment. There is not enough diversity of thought. There is not enough difference yeah. of opinion. There is not enough people who are willing to try and do different things to net a different result instead of leaving the people who are at the power switch in power. Like that to me is a problem that needs to be addressed at the highest levels of the military. Uh, and we need to figure out a way to welcome in uh, personalities that might not otherwise be there because guess what? Um, we are an ever-changing, ever-evolving force. And the folks who hold those positions now grew up in a different military. They came up a different way. They trained differently. They did everything differently. And yet they're the ones deciding the future for uh, many people who are 20, 30 years their junior. you got to bridge the gap. And you only do that with diversity of thought. Listen, you, you are starting a whole different series of podcasts where you get into this theory, but 
essentially you're right. You know, if you look at political elite theory, the health of a society or the health of an organization is how easily it is for other people to enter the level of elites. Yep. And if you only are taking a certain type of person, if you, if, and that's the risk you run in any large organization, right? The people that have succeeded in that organization are the ones that are going to succeed in that organization. So they're the ones that are going to be at the top of whatever selection process you come through. Uh, but if you make it hard for other people to get in, then it's a dying organization. Uh, it's just the way that it is. I have had to learn the hard way that the only people who let you behind the velvet ropes are the people behind the velvet ropes. And uh, Funny how that works. Yeah. Uh, it's not a cover charge either. You just have to, they have to let no. you in. Uh, and, and, you know, um, there's a part of me that, that might be a little bit bitter about that, but I put my head on my pillow knowing two things. My integrity is impeccable and uh, nobody outperformed me ever period. Like it was never a performance issue. It's never been a performance issue. It's always, always, always been about personality, good, better, and different. That's the way it is. Uh, that's the way it is. That's right. And, and, and that's okay. You know, and I, I've had to learn, uh, and, and face the fact that, you know, um, and, and one of the toughest lessons I had to learn is, so you're not going to be a general. You didn't fail, right? Like you and I retiring as 05s and 06s doesn't mean we failed in anything. You didn't. You just, you, you, it, the, the, the ride came to an end. It's time to get off. Go wait on another one. <laughs> Listen, but that mentality is, I ran into a guy that he and I were the same. We were instructors at the basic school and I ran into him just a couple of years ago. Uh, and he retired as an 05. And he spent the first few minutes of the conversation trying to convince me that he retired as an 05, but it's okay. And it wasn't his fault. And, you know, it was just a strange conversation to, to have with somebody. I was like, man, I know who you are. Like, I, you, you don't have to convince me that you failed or that you didn't fail because you retired as an 05. That's that's not what we're here to do. I just it, – it, it's just an interesting theory. You, you even look at the, the pyramid structure of the, of the military. It's like the default position should not be that everyone is slated to be – the commandant of the no, Marine Corps, if they don't, they're going to fail. 100%. Like some people, they read the but, pyramidic structure exists for a reason. But the people should fail because of a meritocracy, not right. for anything else. Uh, ideally, that's the way you want it to go. Look, and I had, I had uh, an 07, you know, tell me, hey, you've made it. Like, I'm like, you know, you, you made 06, you've made it. What are, you, what are you worried about it? And I almost scoffed at that notion as if to say, I'm supposed to stop getting better because I've made it like that to me is such a defeatist mentality. Uh, and I, I almost found it insulting. And, and, and again, in fairness to this individual, like they don't know me personally, they know me professionally, um, personally, any, no, nobody would ever say that to me with a straight face and not expect me to clap back at them vociferously, uh, and almost angry. The idea that you would look at me and say, yeah, you're good, man. You, you just chill now. You know, I didn't spend 20 plus years chilling um, and do the things that I did and be successful at them because I was just chilling. You know, that, that was never just like you back. Go back to your instructor school with the lieutenants, the dudes who wanted to just chill. Uh, they got called on the carpet pretty quickly and you weed those out. And, and, you know, for me, it's just I don't want to turn this into a story about that. But, you know, I apologize. But you get where I'm going with all this. Um you know, it really, or you get accused of hazing and then move to the Marine Corps library. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, hey, again, it worked out like it's supposed to work out, right? It did, it did. Um, 
Anyway, okay, so you end up retiring, and um, you decide you're going to do what? Do you have a plan for after retirement or no? Yeah, so my plan was to take over the farm. My family's farm has been in the Smith family for about five generations. Mm -hmm. My sister, while we were in the UK, started being interested in genealogy and started researching how the farm got established. And, you know, she researched and found the actual land grant that my great-great-grandfather had got from the U.S. government. This part of Louisiana had been owned by the Spanish and then owned by the British. And then it's called the Florida Parishes. So at one time was part of Florida, you know, as it extended all the way to the Mississippi River. Uh, so as the United States got control of it and was trying to figure out who owned what, they started passing out land grants. So my great great grandfather was the one that actually got the, the land that we were already on in his name. Um, it's gone through a couple of different iterations. You know, one time it was just timber and uh, this area was big in the timber industry in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, then it kind of transitioned to subsistence farming and some dairy farming. It was big in the dairy world while my dad was a kid. Uh, and then we started raising beef cows. So my, when my dad went off to college uh, and then joined the Marine Corps, my grandfather sold out of the dairy and started raising beef cows, which is what we've done up until I got back in 2016. Well, we still raise beef cows, but I recognize that if we were going to survive, we had to change the model that most farms buy into, which is that you buy everything retail and sell everything wholesale. Most of the farms in America are essentially commodity production type um, farms where the middleman sets the price and you take what you take. I wanted to be able to set my own prices for stuff. And so we decided we were going to start selling meat directly to customers and restaurants. I went through the process of getting our label approved by the USDA. There was a USDA slaughterhouse um, just across the border in Mississippi. Uh, so we got all our started getting meat processed there probably in 2019, 2018, 2019. I've changed a lot of things on the production side too, to try to limit our cost. A lot of electrified fencing. I bought into an intensive grazing type model where we're going to move animals every day and allow the soil to rest or allow the forage to rest, soil to regenerate. Um, and then, you know, some guy eats a bat in China and the world shuts down in 2020 and our business picks up. Uh, people are more interested in knowing where their food came from. And so, uh, I mean, I don't want to skip ahead, but that's ultimately what put us in the crosshairs of our sheriff here in Washington Parish. Well, that, that was kind of where I was going next. Regardless, I was, how does this lead you to all, all you wanted to do is make a good stake. And now, uh, now all of a sudden we're running for office here. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I was a little naive when I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, like we talked about before I got out of the Marine Corps, essentially to stay away from politics. And I, I just moved back home. You know, I wanted to beat my swords into plowshares and be left alone and recognize, I didn't recognize at the time, but I recognize now is that, that that's just naive. They're not going to leave you alone. Um, once we started selling meat, we started showing up on the list of businesses in the parish that were, had, I had registered for a business license and we had registered for uh, the EBT card for a lot of different reasons. But essentially, my wife is a school teacher. And when the pandemic happened and they shut schools down, there were kids that we qualify for free lunches in Washington Parish because we we're below the poverty line. Uh, and there were kids that were getting these cards, but they were just going to be faced with the prospect of going into, you know, Winn-Dixie and buying potato chips and things that weren't good for them. And so we wanted to go through the process of getting approved. 
Having done that, though, we then started showing up on the list of businesses that weren't remitting sales tax, even though we were registered as a business. And so I got served with papers in the fall of 2021 that we owed the parish about $38,000 in back taxes and penalties. Hmm. Um, Now, in Louisiana, it's pretty explicit that farm products sold from the farm by the producer are exempt from sales tax. And so I thought it was just a big misunderstanding. Um, and so I went, hired an attorney, figuring he could just get it, you know, show people what it is. But he was told, nope, we're taking this to court. It's a slam dunk. Uh, I disagreed. Because, uh, again, the, the law is pretty clear. We have the Napoleonic Code in Louisiana. So we are a lot of we have a lot of constitutional amendments. So it was written into the Louisiana Constitution. It was put into the Louisiana Sales Tax Code that farm products sold from the farm are exempt from sales tax. So the sheriff in Louisiana is also the tax collector. Now, there's a lot of perverse incentives when you talk about this, because I know a lot. I think most states are not this way. But here, the chief law enforcement officer is also the chief tax collection officer. And so that's who served us papers was the sheriff's department. Now, most people just want to be left alone. And so I think that the goal for them was to jack up the penalties because of that $38,000, only a couple thousand dollars was estimated back taxes. Most of it was assessed penalties that the attorneys had assessed thinking that we would want to settle, but you know, I'm just a dumb Marine. So if, you catch me in an ambush, I'm going to try to fight my way through. And uh, we decided to fight it. And we went to court last summer. The judge decided in our favor. As a result, we got a lot of publicity uh, because the implications of the case going the other way were that a lot of small producers across the state would then be open up to sheriffs in their parish who wanted to interpret the sales tax code in such a way that would benefit the sheriff's office and not the taxpayers. You know, we would then just be a bunch of revenue producers for this politician who wants to make his office as big, as small as he wants. You know, one of the things about Louisiana is that there's no constitutional authority for the sheriff's office. It's just the elected position. So he's free to make the office as big or small as he wants to. They're not civil servant positions. You know, there's no continuity. There's no standardization. It's you make it as big as you want because then you've got more people that are relying on you for their livelihood. Therefore, you got more political supporters. And then the system just keeps, you know, it's this uh, self-defeating system where things just continue to go badly and everyone just says, well, we'll just do more of what we already know doesn't work. Uh, Anyway, having said all that, we got a lot of publicity last summer. People started asking me about running for sheriff because once the case was publicized, I really became kind of a therapist for people who would call me and tell me their versions of the same story. I had a business and then the sheriff did this. I was a supporter of the sheriff and then he did this. This is a guy who's been elected in politics in Washington Parish for 30 years, you know, and, you know, the longer you stick around those jobs, the more you kind of believe your own nonsense, the more you surround yourself with people that don't have your best interests at heart, you start to make bad decisions. You know, he's in his seventies. It's all he's ever really done in his adult life is be a politician. And he's used to, you know, he's like that boxer that sticks around too long in his career and he's got a big entourage and, 
you know, none of them could be famous. None of them can fight in their own right, but they like that access that comes with the, or they like the influence that comes with their access to that position. And so they just, Hey, just keep running for reelection. So he would be running for his fourth term now or is running for his fourth term. Um, there was a couple incidents that happened over last summer in October. I had someone pass me a, or at the fair, the big fair or the big event in Washington Parish is the Washington Parish fair every October. And so somebody handed me a $5,000 check and they didn't even know me and said, I want you to run for share. And I thought, okay, if someone is willing to part with that much money and they don't even know me, then I probably should seriously consider whether there's a need. And so in talking to people and getting things lined up and I just decided, you know what, I think that this type of position, you know, this executive type of position where you've got a team of guys, you're trying to build a culture, you're trying to generate a result. You're essentially an independent operator. You know, those are things that one, my experience has already put me in those positions. And two, my personality is such that I would be a better sheriff than I would be a legislator. Like the idea of going to cocktail parties and trying to schmooze people and convince people that I'm really more important or knowledgeable or influential than I actually am doesn't appeal to me. But because of, and the other thing about Louisiana is that sheriffs, the sheriff is really the crossroads for all things governmental. So you've got to have relationships with businesses like the parish council, the parish president. You've got to have a relationship with the district attorney's office, you know, adjacent and supporting law enforcement agencies at the state and federal level. And we've got Mississippi on two sides of us. So they're law enforcement agencies. I just thought if that relationship is dysfunctional, then none of these things are going to work to their, to anybody's benefit, except for the politicians. Um, and the other thing is that as you watch the world fall apart around us, and we've kind of alluded to that already, mm-hmm. the only solution is to think locally and act locally. And so in a place like Washington Parish, where less than 8,000 votes will carry the election, I thought, okay, we've got a chance to gain a foothold. And we don't have to, like, if you think Washington Parish or places like Washington Parish are behind the times, 20 years or 30 years or whatever it is, we don't have to go the way that everybody else is going. You know, there's still a chance we could salvage this, but we've got to put up our walls and focus here at home. We can't complain about career politicians at the national level when we accept career politicians at the local level, because the reality is, is that in places like Washington Parish, the sheriff has the ability to influence the daily lives of people a lot more than anybody in D.C. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And I, you know, I, I love the fact that this is a cause that's personal to you. I mean, it's personal to you, but it's actually like literally physically personal to you because it was an assault on your livelihood. Uh, it's yep. not just personal because there's some sort of nebulous or, or emotional feeling behind it. It's, it's you know, legitimately uh, trying to to destroy your livelihood and, and your family. So I, I I certainly appreciate that, and I think it's great. I mean, look, um, we we we've said this a million times. We need more veterans in elected official spots. We need more veterans across the board because at the end of the day, um, it's guys like you that will make a difference. You'll make changes, and and oh by the way, guess what? You'll listen. You know, like shockingly. Uh, veterans have this quirky little thing. Most of us do, at least for the most part, where when someone brings a good idea, we're like, you know what? I didn't think of that. Let's try it that way. That's right. You know, Hey, I don't have to know everything. I have people who work for me who help me understand. So, you know, uh, it's, there's, there's a whole lot of, of good reasons why veterans should be holding elected office, even at the lowest levels. doesn't have to be congressman. doesn't have to be a Senator. doesn't have to be president. You know, um, 
No, I think especially at the local yes. level because you, your ability to influence things, I mean, your position, you're going to have the ability to influence things well beyond just the local level if you are an example to other people. Like, not not taking even account the fact that you can influence things at the local level. You're going to have an immediate impact, right? What what impact are you going to have at the national level? It's it's going to be indirect at best. Uh, but here at the local level, like I said, we we really have the ability to influence people on a daily basis. Um, and the good thing about being a veteran is that early on, you start to learn that you can't be an insecure personality and survive very long in in the <laughs> in the military. So these politicians that are just completely insecure, they're not confident in their own abilities. They've never really done anything. It, it, you know, it's a it's a shame of our system that the skills it takes to get elected are not the same skills that it takes to govern effectively. And a lot of the people that are drawn to these types of positions are not really cut out for the positions that they're elected to serve in. Uh, I just didn't think that that applied to me because I've been told I'm not that good a lot of times. <laughs> I've gotten used to it, believe me. Well, where can people go to support if they want to? Well, you can go to SheriffJasonSmith.com. That's probably the best way. Uh, Financial contributions are always welcomed. Uh, But that's our website. We've got a Facebook page as well on our Sheriff Jason Smith. Um, But just, yeah, just go in there and and look us up. I think you'll be pleased with what you find. And, uh, you know, we use the support from anywhere. Probably it's easier to support us. You know, I, I can imagine that most people would not take much interest in a small political race in a place they've never heard of. But in this case, we are trying to fight the good fight. And if you're worried about the way the world is going, you can help us gain a foothold and be an example to other people. So please, Jason Smith, Sheriff, Sheriff com is probably the best way to find us. And the election is this coming November? The election is October, yes. October, sorry. Okay. All right. Well, yep. Uh, listen, um, what we said earlier in the show, somebody tell that guy, uh, that sheriff who's been elected for 30 years, that guess what? Hey, you didn't fail just because you lost this election. We just put you in retirement. There you go. So, That's right. You know, we, That's right. He's not failing because he didn't beat you. He's, 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 he's succeeded for 30 years, and now it's time to go do something else. That's, That's right. It's just his time. That's just, it. That's it. Just, just his time. Well, look, I mean, uh, amazing story. Um, yes, you're probably more humble than you need to be about what you what you accomplished in Iraq and what you and your – fellow Marines did because it's pretty impressive. Um, so I just want to thank you for sharing that and, and, you know, highlighting some of the, uh, the work that you guys did, uh, while you were there. And, and again, uh, wishing you much success in the election. Uh, I think it's a great thing what you're doing. I think it's great that, you know, there, there are people who are willing to stand up for, um, the things that they believe in. Uh, and again, like as I said earlier, it's okay to be a dissenting voice in the room. It's okay to say, Hey, this isn't right. Uh, and we need to look at a different way of doing things and, and not be pushed away because groupthink is winning out the day, right? No, uh, I think that's right. I, I think, I think there's, a, there's a lot to be said for that. But uh, I continue to wish you the best of success going forward. Uh, continue to make good steak, worst-case scenario, and send me one because, uh, you know, uh, who doesn't love beef? It's what's for dinner. Well, you'll, you'll have to get down here for the VIP tour. We'll hook you up with beef and lamb and honey, and we'll we'll get you some crawfish, too. There, you know, I've, I've never had a crawfish. I've, I've seen See, it. That's where you got to come. You got to come now. I, I'm, more, I'm more partial to crabs and shrimp and lobster than crawfish. Uh, maybe that's the Northeast guy in me. You know, it, it's a d- different breed of seafood up there. Yeah, it'll change your life. You'll okay. you'll uh, you'll you'll never you'll always wonder why you spent all that time trying to eat a crab 
Why, why you have to go through all that work for such a small payoff? It is a lot of work. Easy payoff. It's a lot of work. That's why I like the Alaskan King Crab, like snap and eat and go. That's right. You know, I mean, listen, I lived in Baltimore for, for a real long time. I went to college there and Maryland crabs are a ton of fun and it's a great social thing. You end up drinking a lot more than you end up eating. That's uh, right. For the record. But you know, uh, yeah, it is a lot of work just to get a little bit of meat. So, uh, which is why I don't do peel and eat shrimp. I'm like, I don't need to work to get to my food. Just, just give me the thing to dunk and go, you know? So anyway, we digress. We turned into we've had eight different podcasts. Another podcast, show. right? We've had eight different podcasts on this show along the way. Again, sheriffjasonsmith.com, the way to go. Guys, help out, donate, please. Uh, show Jason some love and support. He's earned it uh, to say the least. Great to get to know you. Uh, best to you, your wife, your family, all the kids. Uh, wishing you nothing but success going forward, brother. Hey, I appreciate it, Mark. It's been great. Thanks, Jason Smith. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.